growing in God's Word, and learning what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. Christ is preeminent in me, and so therefore Christ is preeminent through me. Preeminent. The word means superior to or notable above all others, greatest in importance or degree, having paramount rank or importance. Followers of Jesus would certainly agree with that definition as applied theologically to Jesus, but here's a question. Do we agree with it practically? Is Jesus Christ superior to or notable above all others in my life? Is he outstanding, greatest in importance or degree or significance or achievement in my life? We could chew on that one a while, couldn't we? I'm Rick Freeman. Welcome to Crosswalk. We're in the middle of a series entitled Colossians. It's all about him. Pastor Clay is walking us through the book of Colossians, one of Paul's prison letters. Even though Paul had never been to Colossae, he had a deep love and great concern for the church there. False teachers were invading the church there and corrupting the church's understanding of who Jesus is. To combat that, Paul wrote this letter that confronts the false ideas. Paul's letter has great relevance for us today. There are lots of ideas, religions, and philosophies floating around today that challenge our understanding of who Jesus is. While false teachers were rampant in Paul's day and they were invading the church, false teachers are just as rampant and just as available today. And they're not just invading the church, they're invading your very home through the television, through whatever medium it might be, with all different kinds of ideas of who Jesus is or was or what Jesus came to do or not do and what the ramifications of Jesus are for my life. Besides all of the other philosophies and religions and isms that there are in the world. Last week, Pastor Clay explained to us how Paul was building a case for Jesus Christ preeminent. He is God and the only one worthy to be worshipped. But while we may agree with that statement theologically, do we agree with it practically? In other words, is Jesus Christ preeminent in our everyday lives? That's the question we're exploring today. As we continue in our study, it's all about Him. Now here's Pastor Clay with this week's Crosswalk. Have you any, any of you ever had a, an idea, a thought in your head that somehow didn't translate into your, into your hands or, or into your life? Uh, do you know what I'm, I'm talking about uh, like that <laughs> every day? Thank you, Brother Ernie. I see that hand. Um, I can remember a, a, several, a number of years ago, um, my wife and I saved up, and for Christmas we took our, our kids snow skiing. Uh, out in Colorado, out in I mean, uh, Steamboat Springs, I think is where we, where we went. I had never skied before in my life, not snow skied. I'd grown up water skiing and was pretty, uh, pretty good at water skiing. It's great, actually. No, <laughs> no. I, I, but I, I'd grown up water skiing, and um, so we got to see Steamboat Springs. I've never snow skied before. Our kids, they're all in the snowboard, and you know, it's just really good. We met some old friends out there that we'd known for years, and, and so it's you know, really going to be a, a great time. Well, I, I had in my mind how this was going to go. I understood the principles of snow skiing. Uh, I, you know, I understood you know, centrifugal force and gravity, and, and I understood this idea of you know, staying over your bindings and all this kind of stuff, and, 
having been an experienced water skier, um, I felt quite confident in my mind that, that I was going to get on these skis and, you know, look like Jean-Claude somebody, you know, just, you know, throwing a wake up, spraying somebody, you know, and just, and so I got out there. And uh, long story short, spent the next several hours falling down that mountain, literally falling down that mountain over and over and over again. I got to the bottom. I got to our lodge thing. I was so exhausted and frustrated that I, you know, I, I come in the door and I've still got these stupid things on my feet and I drag, I'm, I'm, lay, I'm dragging myself over and I kind of, you know, pound on the door. <laughs> and Cindy opens the door and I said, get these things off of me. That was the last time I ever skied. <laughs> we were there almost a whole week. I never went out again. I'd taken stuff. I was working on my doctorate, and I took lots of reading stuff and writing stuff, so it worked out okay. But in my mind, man, I just had this all planned out. I could see how it was going to happen, but it didn't happen. This past Friday, our student pastor, Dave, uh, got me out on the tennis court. Um, I used to be a, a pretty proficient tennis player. I was great, really. <laughs> no, at one time, I was, I was a very good tennis player. I, I, we lived in Florida, and I was, I was, you know, trying to get a top 10 ranking in Florida, which I got, and, um, uh, you know, so I, I played every day. I was, you know, three to four hours a day on the tennis court, five, six days a week, and uh, really working at it. Uh, God took me away from that. He just kind of removed that, you know, all long story, how God's providence works. God took that desire out of my life. Well, that's, that's been, you know, like 20 years ago. Well, Dave is a, a really good tennis player. He played tennis in college and uh, grew up playing and he's, he's really good. Somehow, Dave roped me into a grudge match. He denies this, by the way. Roped me into a grudge match with the Dr. Clary brothers, the twin Dr. Clary brothers, which, you know, I'm praying, boy, I hope this is not a game of strategy because we're in trouble. They are much smarter than we are. Um, but so we get out there on the tennis court, and, and he did. He's taken me out a couple times to just kind of get the feel back and all that kind of stuff. Um, and we start playing. Uh, and I, uh, hmm. You know how, and if you've reached a certain level of proficiency in something, whatever it is, in your mind, that's how it's supposed to be, right? In your mind, that's, that's what's supposed to happen. It doesn't happen, it went, you know, 20 years later. You know, I, can't, I couldn't volley, I couldn't hit a forehand, I couldn't hit a backhand, I could barely kick a serve. It was, just, it was ridiculous. At one point, the, 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 the climax of this was when Eric or Brian won, you know, throws up this weak defensive lob, you know, and I'm just like, oh, <laughs> you know, this is it. And in my mind, I could see exactly how this was going to go. I was going to maybe backpedal a couple steps, and then I was going to jump up, and I was just going to crush this thing right into Eric's abdomen or, you know, or so. You know. <laughs> so, I mean, in my mind, I had this was all, and, and when the moment, when the instant came, my body said, whoa, big fella, what do you think you're doing? 
And, and he, he, I mean, I don't even, I don't think Ashlyn got a photograph of it, fortunately, because Dave just laughed at me. He said, oh, you should have seen your overhead. Because <laughs> it ended up being like this, uh, thing. In my mind, I had this idea of what was going to happen, but it didn't come out through my hands. It didn't come out through my life. We're in a series, in a study, in the book of Colossians, written, coincidentally, to the church in Colossae. Paul's letter to them, and we'll talk more about it in just a minute, uh, brings out the overarching principle that it's all about him. That in the end, all of this stuff is about him, and Paul uh, has his reasons for doing that. In chapter 1, when we started this a few weeks ago, in chapter 1, the first few verses, 1 through 13 or something like that, 1 through 14, we saw Christ presented, and Paul begins to paint this picture to the church in Colossae about, about who Christ is. And then last week, in verses 15 through 22, we began to see this picture of Christ preeminent, that He is exalted, that he is the one that is above everything. Now, if you were here, you may remember that we looked at a definition of preeminent. And I want to bring that up again in case you weren't here or just to refresh your memory. Preeminent, superior to or notable above all others, outstanding, greatest in importance or degree or significance or achievement. Having paramount rank, dignity, or importance. Preeminent. And in chapter 1, verses 15 through 22, the Apostle Paul unapologetically speaks of who Christ is, God in the flesh. Now, if you're here, you may remember me saying that part of Paul's reason for writing this letter was because of false teachers that had begun to move into the church in Colossae and corrupt the teaching of the church. And the most important area where they were attacking was the sufficiency and the authority of Jesus Christ. In other words, and there were a couple different groups in there, but there, but there was some of the teaching was that, well, the, the work of Christ on the cross wasn't really sufficient enough. There was another group that was kind of teaching, well, you know, he, he's not really God. He, you know, he's important, and he's, but he's not really. So they were attacking the sufficiency and the authority of Jesus Christ. And Paul combats that in this letter. He writes to them and he says, no, let me tell you about who this is. Let me tell you about Jesus Christ. And he begins to establish the fact that he is preeminent. Last week, I ended the service asking the question, is Jesus Christ preeminent in my life? Now, to, to put it another way, to borrow from that definition that we just saw, is Jesus Christ superior to or notable above all others in my life? We could chew on that one a while, couldn't we? Is he outstanding, greatest in importance or degree or significance or achievement in my life? Does he have paramount rank, dignity, or importance in my life? Today, while still continuing to chew on this idea of Christ preeminent, and Paul's building this case for why, listen, this isn't, this isn't just somebody. This is the buddy. 
while continuing to build on that idea, Paul does it in kind of a different way. He takes kind of a sidebar and begins to, to, to discuss some of his own personal life to some extent, to begin to discuss his own personal life in ministry. In other words, the Apostle Paul's been telling us that Christ is preeminent. Now, Paul's going to begin to show us that Christ is preeminent in a very practical way. He's preeminent in my life. Paul begins to build this case. He's preeminent in my life and in my ministry, and so he should be preeminent in your life and in your ministry. Now, if you're sitting there and your first thought after having heard me say that was, wait a minute, I'm not in ministry. Au contraire. I beg to differ. Madam, ma'am, sir, if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you are in ministry. You are called to ministry. It may not be a, a vocational calling per se, as it is for some of us, or may not be yet. You may not be doing much of anything with it at this point, but you're called to ministry. Michael even made reference to it today, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus. Watch this. So we can do the good things He's planned for us long ago, a.k.a. ministry. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul puts it this way, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints. Uh, anybody want to guess who the saints are? That's you. That's not a bunch of dead guys, statues, or whatever. Biblically, a person in a relationship with Jesus Christ is considered a saint, sanctified by his work. For the equipping of y'all... For the work of, I'm sorry, I can't, what, what is that last, what's that word there? Oh, ministry. The edifying or building up of the body of Christ. No, we're, we're called to ministry. And so Paul begins to build this case for why Christ is preeminent and why he should be preeminent in our life. You can understand the importance of this topic, I think. Because while false teachers were rampant in Paul's day and they were invading the church, false teachers are just as rampant and just as available today. And they're not just invading the church, they're invading your very home. Through the television, through whatever medium it might be. With all different kinds of ideas of who Jesus is or was or what Jesus came to do or not do and what the ramifications of Jesus are for my life. Besides all of the other philosophies and religions and isms that there are in the world. Oh, this is really important. We're in Colossians chapter 1. If you brought a copy of God's Word with you today, please open it there. You can also follow along on the screen. And we'll be reading from verse 23 through the end of the chapter. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up 
what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God, bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the Word of God, that is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to His saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim Him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to His power which mightily works within me. Let, let, me, let me just give you, as we start today, the, what I refer to as the BP squared, the big picture biblical principle in this latter part of chapter 1. It looks like this. Christ is preeminent in me and through me. That's the idea that seems, as, as, as I look at this text and read this text, what, what seems to be coming out over and over again through what Paul is saying in this, this self-reflective period of his writing is that, hey, Christ is preeminent in me, and so therefore Christ is preeminent through me in my life. Let me deal uh, first with this verse. We're going to kind of walk through this text this morning. And as I said last week, same thing. I need your listening ears on. I need you to be thinking through some of these, uh, some of the subject matter as we discuss it. We're just walking through this text this morning. But let me begin uh, with this in verse 23, where Paul says, If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul was made a minister. I want to start in verse 23 because uh, that verse has sometimes been used to uh, teach or promote the idea that somehow you can lose your salvation, somehow you can fall from grace and not have this thing that God has obtained for you and that you can somehow lose it. Paul just to kind of wrap up this idea from, from last week and how it leads into it in verse 22, he says, Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. And then begins this next verse with this little conjunction that is usually translated if. If indeed you continue in the faith. And so... It has been argued, and it might even seem or sound as if Paul is saying, well, it sounds as if Paul is saying that you can, to use his words, move away from your faith. You can move away from this relationship with Jesus Christ. But I don't believe that's the case at all. I don't think that's what Paul is saying at all. And a little bit of historical context may help here, because I think Paul's using it. Um, Colossae, the city to where Paul was writing this church, was in a region of the world that was known for frequent earthquakes. Lots of earthquakes, apparently. 
that would vary in their severity, but it was a place, a region, where they suffered earthquakes all the time. Uh, Warren Wiersbe says that uh, that phrase, moved away from, uh, can actually be translated earthquake-stricken. It can be used to translate as earthquake-stricken. And so what Paul is doing here is he, is he is using an architectural analogy, comparing the hope of glory to, the, to a firm foundation of a house. What Paul's saying is, if you have built your life on this, this hope of glory, this firm foundation that is Jesus Christ, then you will not be moved away by any shaking, by any tribulation, by any trial, by any difficulty that comes into your life, if you build this thing on the firm foundation of Jesus Christ, you shall not be moved because He is the hope of glory. The hope of glory is that you and I and all of God's creation can be redeemed. The hope of glory is that Christ's death on the cross was sufficient payment for you and me. The hope of glory is Jesus Christ. And Paul says, if you've built your foundation on Him, then nothing will move you away from this. He is the hope of glory. And so, in verse 24, Paul states this staggering statement. And, I might add, often misunderstood statement. Where he says in verse 24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. All right, let's just cut to the chase. Paul is not in any way, shape, or form saying that the death of Christ was not sufficient for our salvation. We know that he's not saying that because over and over again in his letters to the churches and over and over again in his sermons that are recorded in the book of Acts, over and over again the Apostle Paul makes clear that the death of Christ on the cross was absolutely, totally, completely sufficient for our salvation. It was and is all that is necessary for you and I, sinful men and women, to be redeemed, to be saved, to be born again. That Christ accomplished that and Christ alone accomplished that. He is totally sufficient. So Paul is not saying that that in some way we have to add to. And he's not saying, oh, well, I've got to suffer uh, to help fulfill the sufferings of Christ to, to make this thing what it's supposed to be, as has been taught in some church doctrine, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. No. no. What Paul is saying is that I, I want to do this. For your sake, I want to do this. Remember, Paul's never been to Colossae. They only know him by reputation. They only know him by what their pastor, Papras, has taught them about Paul. And I have no doubt that the, that the false teachers were taking advantage of the fact that Paul was, was not there and that Paul was even in prison while, while he's writing this letter. I have no doubt that they have moved in and they've begun to attack Paul and they've begun to attack his teaching. By the way, isn't that the way it works? It's always easy to talk about people or attack people when they're not around, Right? And I have no doubt that they are beginning uh, to do that. Well, you don't even know this Apostle Paul. What do you even know about this guy? He's in prison, for goodness sakes. 
Can you even trust anybody that's in prison? And Paul is revealing some of his heart here. And he says, no, listen, I want you to understand this. I want to do this. I'm happy to do this on behalf of Christ and on your behalf. Because you're the body of Christ, he says. And so it, it's perfectly okay for me to do this, to suffer. And Paul was suffering. As I said just a moment ago, he's in prison while he's writing this. I've never been in prison, but I've seen scared straight. And I don't want to go to prison. He knows what it is. Oh, and by the way, just in case, just in case you've never read it before, let me just read to you this morning a section of another letter that Paul wrote on another occasion when he was defending his, his ministry, his second letter to the church in Corinth. Just to maybe just refresh, even if you have read it before, can we just be amazed by this again? Are they servants of Christ? He's referring to the false teachers that were attacking him. I speak as if insane. Paul, he doesn't even want to do this. He's almost embarrassed to have to talk about himself like this, but he's got to defend his ministry. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received the Jews 39 lashes. They gave 39 lashes, as I understand it historically, because 40 would almost, was usually the breaking point where a person would almost certainly die. They might survive 39. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from such external things. Besides all of that, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. It, it blows my mind. Paul says, I am, I am happy to do this. And by the way, I mean more than happy to do this. The world's elusive chase for happiness based on our circumstances always comes up short of what we need in our lives. Have you noticed that? It never quite meets what we need in our lives because the world's idea of happiness is based on, totally on, our circumstances. If my health is good, if my love life is good, if my job is good, if my bank account is good, if my school or my uh, workplace or my whatever is good, then I'm happy. Let me ask you a question. How many times in your life have all of those things been good at one time? Probably not very often. I'm, I'm telling you folks, if you haven't discovered this yet, you need to get your mind around this idea. Happiness, based on my circumstances, they're like Elvis sightings. Everybody's heard of somebody that's seen him, but nobody can ever quite substantiate it. That's, that's what happiness, based on circumstances, is. It's like grasping at water, and just when you think you've got it, you open your hand and nothing's there. And Paul says, listen, Christ is in me, and because Christ is in me, Christ flows through me. He is preeminent in me, and because of that, He gives a joy into my life that, is, that far exceeds anything that this world has to offer, and that gives me provision to face anything that comes my way. And we read just a little bit of the anything that came His way. 
I'll take it on. Bring it on. Imprisonment? Been there, done that. Hunger? Okay. Exposure to the elements? No problem. I want those things. I'm joyful to, to take them and use them if it will produce in me a greater reflection of Christ Jesus and if it will advance the cause of Christ to make His name famous to the ends of the earth, then trials, adversity, hardships, where do I sign? Where do I sign? Listen, I don't know about you, but that is so convicting to me. Because, I, man, I know. I know me. I know how, how easily I can complain about my circumstances or my situation. I know how easy it is for me to begin to just whine to the Lord about, oh, Lord, why do I have to go? Why is this going to have to happen to me? And here's Paul saying, well, I've only had 39 lashes five times. I'm pretty sure I could take six. I've only been beaten with, with, with rods three times. I'm ready for number four. And listen, he, he's, not, he's not a superman. He, he just understands this. That because Christ is preeminent in me, Christ is preeminent through me, and he gives me this, this power to accomplish whatever it is that he wants me to do in my life. It's amazing. Which is why he says he's doing his part, his share. He's more than happy to do it. And then in verse 26, he begins to talk about this mystery. This, this thing that's been, in a sense, hidden. Verse 26 and, and 27, that is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among, among the Gentiles, which is, so here's the mystery, Christ in you, the hope of glory. The mystery is this. Gentiles were included in the family of God. Um, when, I, when I say Gentiles, when the Bible refers to Gentiles, the simplest definition I can give you is this. Anybody that's not Jewish. Really the simplest definition. If you're here and you're not Jewish, you're a Gentile. The, the Greek word New Testament was originally written in is, is simply ethne. We get our word ethnic or ethnic groups from it. It meant nations. The Jews didn't like this part of God's plan. The Jews had some serious issues with prejudices and with pride. And Paul says, here's the mystery the hope of the gospel, the hope of glory, is for everybody. The hope of glory is that all of us can have a hope of glory. And the Jews didn't like this because, because they thought, hey, Jehovah is our God. You know, he, he, made the, he made the deal with us. And he did. He had a special relationship with the Jews. He had a purpose for them and a plan, which, by the way, I think that he, that he still has. But his his purposes and plans for salvation were for everybody. And the Jews said, hey, hey, he, Jehovah, he's our God. He's our God. And God's saying, no, I'm everybody's God. I'm everybody's God. And I desire a relationship with everybody. Here's a, here's a couple of things to keep in mind when we talk about the, uh, this, this hope of glory and this, this thing. Anybody, 
anybody, anybody can come to Him. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter what the color of your skin is. It doesn't matter what language you speak. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter how much education you have. None of that stuff matters. Anybody can come to Him if they're willing to acknowledge their need for Him, their sinfulness in their life, and the recognition that Christ paid that penalty for them, and they would come to Him and surrender their life to Him. Anybody. Would y'all just say that with me? Anybody can come to Him. And here's the second part of it. Anybody can come to Him from anywhere. You know, I've met people that have told me that they had sinned too much for God to forgive them. I've heard people say, I, I've gone too far. I, I've done too much. You just don't know what's been in my life. You don't know where all I've been. You don't know what all I've, I've done. God couldn't forgive me. But the great thing about the love of God, ladies and gentlemen, listen, hear me on this. The great thing about the love of God is that there is no depth that you and I can go to in sin that God's grace cannot reach down and pull us out. The hope of glory is that all of us have a hope of glory. That it is for anybody, anywhere, that's willing to recognize their need and come to Him. Let me wrap this thing up if I can kind of quickly because in verse 28 he says, we proclaim Him. He comes back to the idea of Him that he'd hit on so much in verses uh, 15 through 22. He comes back there and we're going to see it again uh, next week. We proclaim Him. Admonishing every man, and, and the idea would be every person, and teaching every man with all wisdom. Why? So that we may present every man complete in Christ. I honestly believe that. I honestly believe that anybody, anywhere can come to Christ. If they'll let go of themselves and whatever it is they're trusting in and cling only to the cross of Christ, God will redeem them. He'll save them. In verse 29, For this purpose also I labor, striving according to His power, which mightily works within me. Paul says, Because Christ is preeminent in me, Christ then is preeminent through me. His power is working in and through me to, to affect the ministry that He has called me to and to make a difference in this world, even to you, Colossians, whom I've never even been there, you've never met me, seen me with your own eyes, but I love you deeply, I care about you, and I labor at this, I strive in my labor, in this call to ministry, literally servant, to be a servant on your behalf, on the behalf of Christ. I want to do this, he says, because that's Christ in me. It's all about Him. So, we come back to the question that we started with. Is Jesus Christ superior to or notable above all others in my life? Is He outstanding, greatest in importance or degree or significance or achievement? Does He have paramount rank, dignity or importance in my life? That's a great question. Well, Pastor Clay's certainly given us plenty to think about today, hasn't he? 
Paul's honesty and transparency revealed in the heart of a man who was living out the theological truth that he was preaching. Clearly, his words teach us that Jesus Christ is preeminent. And as we heard today, his actions teach us that Jesus Christ is preeminent in his life. What about our lives? Do we live as if Jesus Christ is superior to all others? Is he greatest in importance? Does Jesus Christ have paramount rank or importance in our lives? As we heard Pastor Clay say today, anybody anywhere can come to Jesus Christ and receive forgiveness and be adopted into the family of God. But that's not a get out of hell free card that we can stick in our pocket for the time we need him. No, Jesus Christ must be preeminent in our daily lives. It isn't always easy and you and I don't always get it right. But as the Apostle Paul reminded us today, if we know Christ as Lord and Savior, then it's His power which mightily works within me. We're glad you joined us for this week's message on Crosswalk. Each week, Pastor Clay opens the Bible and brings out its exciting and practical truths to apply to our lives. Cross Culture Church is a new church in North Raleigh, but instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice realness. We meet Sundays at 1030 at Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. And we welcome anyone looking for a place to learn about God's plan for their life. At Cross Culture Church, we experience the liberating, satisfying, life-changing power of the cross. And it's our desire to bring that power to a culture in need of freedom, hope, and joy. We hope you'll come join us on a Sunday morning. We'll save a seat for you. Cross Culture Church, a new church for people like you. Learn more about us, who we are, what we're about, what we do, and what we believe. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org. Cross Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross.